The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Very good morning, everybody. This is Squawk Box. Welcome to the program. Here are your headlines. Order! Order! The eyes to the right, 328. The nose to the left, 301. Not a good start, Boris. Downing Street defeated Conservative rebels helped Boris Johnson's opponents move another step closer to blocking a no-deal Brexit in October. As the Prime Minister confirms, he'll seek an early election if he loses today's critical vote. MPs vote tomorrow to stop negotiations and to compel another pointless delay to Brexit, potentially for years, then that would be the only way to resolve this. U.S. stocks drop on the first trading day of September as manufacturing contracts for the first time in three years and new Chinese tariffs take effect. It's mixed trade in Asia as the private Kaishin survey reveals China's services activity hit a three-month high in August. And in an exclusive interview with CNBC, Lebanon's prime minister talks to me about how he's trying to fix the struggling economy here and what actually keeps him up at night. The only thing about all of this that scares me is the war. How close are we to that? I don't know. And I don't think anybody wants a war. Is it a possibility? It's a possibility like any other possibility. But... At this hour, we're live with the Handelsblatt Banking Summit in Frankfurt. Plus, Hurricane Dorian heads towards Florida after wrecking havoc on the Bahamas. And it's not quite Christmas in September. Stay tuned to find out why Trump's tariffs are hitting one town in China particularly hard. Hello, very good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. We need to bring you up to speed very quickly with the political developments here in the UK in the last 24 hours. 21 Conservative rebels join forces with opposition parties to snatch control of parliamentary business in a late night vote. It paves the way now for a crucial ballot on legislation designed to stop a no deal Brexit, which the opposition is also expected to win. Prime Minister Boris Johnson has confirmed he will seek an early election if that bill is successful. There be no, no doubt, Mr Speaker, about the consequences of this vote tonight. It means that Parliament is on the brink of wrecking any deal that we might be able to strike in Brussels. Because tomorrow's bill would hand control of the negotiations to the EU. And that would mean more dither more delay and more confusion and it would mean that the eu themselves would be able to decide how long to keep this country in the eu and since i refuse to go along with that plan we are going to have to make a choice mr speaker i don't want an election the public don't want an election i don't believe the right honourable gentleman wants an election but if the house votes for this bill tomorrow the public will have to choose who goes to Brussels on October the 17th to sort this out and take this country forward. 
The 21 Conservative rebels have since been expelled from the parliamentary party. The government lost its working majority earlier in the day after Conservative MP Philip Lee defected to the Liberal Democrats. Uh, here's the dramatic moment he crossed the floor of the House of Commons during the Prime Minister's statement. Explaining the decision, Lee wrote, quote, the party has become infected with the twin diseases of populism and English nationalism. Well, Willem is trying to wade through all of this in Westminster. Historic day yesterday, potentially a historic day today, but the sequencing of events going forward is absolutely key, Willem. Good morning. Good morning to you. Good morning to you. That's right. And we've seen a, a, an unusual degree of unity amongst some of the opposition parties when you talk about that sequencing. Let me try and explain what exactly that means. Essentially, Boris Johnson has said he would like to see an election. We've heard from his office that they would like to see that at some point in mid-October. In order for him to have an election under the terms of something called the Fixed Terms Parliament Act, that's essentially one that describes quite how often you should have elections, he would need two-thirds of the House of Commons to push through that idea. As you just mentioned, he no longer has a majority, so he'll need some opposition lawmakers to agree with him that now is the time for an election. The concerns they have is that by giving him that power to call an election, he could choose to call it between now and October 31st, or between now and early November, which would mean potentially you'd have an election campaign or an election result very close to that existing October 31st deadline. That's something they want to avoid. So what we heard time and again from opposition leaders yesterday was that they would like to see the legislation being brought today passed before they give him the power to call an election. Here's Jeremy Corbyn's version of that demand. If the Prime Minister has the confidence in his Brexit policy, when he has one he can put forward, he should put it before the people in a public vote. the table a motion for a general election, fine, get the bill through first in order to prevent, in order, in order to take no deal off the table. You hear from the volume of the support that Jeremy Corbyn got during that demand, the amount of uh, support he feels and, and enjoys currently in the parliament when it comes to that demand. We've seen time and again over the last year or so, there is not a majority appetite in this parliament for a no-deal Brexit. We saw that again last night. What could happen over the course of the rest of this week, of course, is going to be key. That legislation will be introduced today, will potentially be voted on as soon as this evening by the lower chamber, the House of Commons. At that point, it would have to move through to the House of Lords. We spoke to one of the Lords members just a few moments ago here this morning, and he said he expected to see that pass because ultimately the House of Lords, the upper chamber, should reflect the will of the House of Commons. The challenge for all of these members of Parliament trying to get this through quickly enough is the cut-off date early next week when we expect to see Parliament suspended for up to five weeks. They're very keen to try and push this through before they're once again called away from the, the House here and, and put essentially on suspension for five weeks. Uh, Willem, a lot of the questions, I guess, have almost unanswerable uh, answers in a, in a bizarre way. Uh, but let me, let me put to you that we have an election and then we have a hung Parliament. What happens after that? I mean, it's a really, really important question, because if you look at the latest polls, no clear majority for any uh, party at the moment. 
no clear coalition majority, frankly, for the Liberal Democrats, the Labour Party and some of the smaller parties because we have this new insurgent group, the Brexit Party. They don't currently have seats in the House of Commons behind me at the moment. But going into a new election, you could imagine before Brexit has happened, they will have that very strong cudgel with which to beat the electorate to try and get people to vote for them in favour of a Brexit as soon as possible. And that could really fragment the landscape. In terms of what that means for the Brexit process, of course, in the past, we've heard again and again from the European Commission and from European leaders that a major event would be reason enough for a further extension. That would either be a general election or a referendum. So imagine that there is an election between now and the end of October. I would be very surprised were the new government to go to Brussels and say we'd like a little bit more time if their counterparts across the EU did not grant them that. Do you want to get into the trade on sterling? Because yesterday we saw some of the lows that we've had in recent years uh, back to, to 2016, 119.59, the lowest handle that flashed up on the charts. This morning we've cracked 121, which is a fairly wide range in a short period of time. What are you hearing now with positioning and some of the very scenarios that are playing out down at Westminster? Well, you know, again and again, when the threat of no deal, Karen, has come to the fore, we've seen currency traders and the market move against the pound. They lose confidence in the currency because of all of the details they've read over the last two years about what a no deal might mean for the British economy. To see that bounce back on the back of the confidence yesterday in the opposition blocking no deal is not a surprise at all going into the next few weeks, if we were to see the legislation introduced today passed once again, it would be a bit of a flashback to earlier in the year when once again Parliament stood up and said we don't want no deal. But ultimately, until there is a deal that's passed by Parliament, no deal is still a possibility. Even by saying we want to try and postpone this Brexit deadline potentially from the end of October to the end of January, all that does is just push that further down the road, potentially for a new government or a new Parliament to try and deal with. But until that's you know, categorically taken off the table because a deal passes through Parliament and is then ratified by the European Parliament, it's all a bit of a moot point for currency traders. Uh, and on that fascinating point, Willem, let, let's let you go for a moment and let's just have a look at what's going on with sterling. Because you would have thought after dropping through 119 or getting down to 119, with even more uncertainty, we would continue to fall. But in fact, we've come back to 121 which means we're back through 120. So does that suggest that the currency traders are buying the pound on the likelihood that the bill to prevent a no-deal Brexit will happen? Or are they buying it on the prospect of an election that brings some resolution? Quite frankly, you pick your own choice in that list of uh, alternatives, I suspect, well, at this point. Here yesterday, there's a lot of positioning where many are just simply short the trade. So if there's any sign of what would be perceived as market-friendly positive news, then you start to see this pop take place in the currency, and perhaps but, that's what's playing out this morning. But which bit of it is the market-friendly well, news? Well, an extension suggests no cliff edge, which has been one of the market concerns. I mean, Steve mentioned yesterday about Jeremy Corbyn prospect of that type of government, which would be the most extreme non-market-friendly news, but I think might be too early for that to be 
priced in to currency uh, trades at this point. It's purely just a trade around extension, cliff edge in October <coughs> or not. It's lucky that the UK is the only hotspot politically that we've got to worry about in Europe, isn't it? That's right. Uh, on that note, shall we push on and take a look at Italy? As members of Italy's five-star party have voted in favour of forming a coalition government with the PD, an online ballot showed 79% of voters approved the partnership. The move paves the way for Prime Minister Giuseppe Conte to present President Sergio Mattarella with plans for a new administration. Speaking after the vote, five-star leader Luigi Di Maio said he was happy with the result. I'm very proud of today's vote, and I'm very proud of the government which will come, since it's founded on many ideas we were achieving, and that someone decided not to allow us to achieve anymore, but he didn't succeed. Once again, we're here with maximum honesty and transparency to tell Italians that our objective is to realise the electoral programme. I've just been told by our producer there is a world outside of European political consternation. So let's go and have a look at the US markets as well, because I thought it was quite fascinating in many, many ways. The US markets, as you can see, over my left shoulder, got a bit of a drubbing yesterday. We saw the Dow down 1.08%, 285 points. The Nasdaq down 1.1%. The data was pretty bad, actually. The manufacturing ISM number coming in into contraction territory in, in August, 491 had fallen from 51.2 in July. Export orders, horrible figure there. Went down to 43.3 from 48.1 the previous month. New orders also 47.2. So all of these key metrics uh, pointing to a slowdown. Is it pointing to a recession yet? Uh, that is the question that many are asking. And will it force the hand uh, of the Federal Reserve? But the sector moves, I thought, were fascinating. So look at this wall. We've got some really good sectors for you. Bingo, there they are. Look at this. Flight to safety. Utilities, 1.8%. These, these are trading in record levels. This, the, the consumer staples, record levels. But real estate? Why was real estate trading at record levels as a subsector? Well, the clue might be in the fact that when you look at the 30-year mortgage rate, 3.58%. Now, that is down from 4.9% back in November. So you've already seen huge cuts in the cost of your mortgage, potentially, if you're taking it out on a 30-year basis as well. So record territory, record territory, record territory. But the other side of it, of course, which led us so aggressively lower, industrials, look at that, getting an absolute drubbing, 1.4% lower. Uh, technology stocks also, as we saw on the NASDAQ, really being hit hard as well. But this, for me, is a brilliant board because it shows you there are opportunities to trade your sectors even when the market is all moving, dare I say, at, at an index level in the same direction. Look at the difference between the utilities and the industrials. Now, I'm not telling you how to trade. I, I, I've given that up years ago. But look, over a 3% difference in the move of those two sectors in one session, surely that is a very interesting opportunity on either side of the ledger as well. Let's move on and take a look at the treasuries, because I do want to make that point about the 30-year mortgage as well. Look at that one point. 0.966 is where you are seeing the treasury yield. So you've got 1.966 there, 30-year mortgage at 1.58 as well. So a uh, big part, 3.58. So there's your margin uh, over the treasury. So they're getting, what, 1.6% give or take as well. Uh, the five-year paper down to 133 yield as well. Quick look at the oil markets as well. Again, I mentioned that energy is under a lot of pressure. Uh, bear market territory uh, for Brent. Uh, but it was back up to 58.49 in this session, uh, 54.22 light sweet crude. Gold actually losing its bid a little bit. Had got up to 
15.56 I saw as a higher yesterday session, down 3.3 bucks per troy ounce. The Asian markets, uh, as we mentioned, mixed markets going on at the moment, but the Hang Seng, look at that, 1.2% to the good, and the Kospi, four temps higher as well. So European opening calls, I think they're higher actually, aren't they? Here we go, yes. 25 points up for the FTSE, Zetradax 55 to the good, uh, FTSE MIB over in Italy. Did I mention I'm going to Italy tomorrow? See a bit of political consternation over there rather than Westminster. 151 points higher. I have checked the weather forecast, though. Uh, it should be lovely. It's No? <laughs> really? It's a bit seasonal, the weather. No? I've seen... Do you know, every time I go to Como, yes. great place, I've had some of the worst weather ever. Oh, dear. I know you feel very sorry for me. Oh, we're always cut up about that, aren't we, Karen? <laughs> you can always we're get inside always and hit really the upset buffet. If it rains wherever Steve <laughs> That's goes. That's right, yes. <laughs> <laughs> It's going into that winter season soon. <laughs> we, we, we've got to take a, a very quick break here. So while President Trump remains fixated on getting a trade deal with China, uh, Moscow is cozying up with uh, Indian leader Modi. 25 deals expected to be signed at the Eastern Economic Forum between these two leaders. We're going to take you out to Vladivostok in just a few minutes to catch up with one of the key players in that story, Kirill Dmitriev, the and CEO of RDIF. And ahead, Lebanese Prime Minister Saad Hariri speaks exclusively to CNBC, talking on the difficulties in the region as he calls on Arab leaders to put aside their differences. In the Arab world, we are too busy fighting each other instead of focusing on what really matters. Real wars today are economic wars. This is, you know, this is what's happening in this region is out of fashion. And it's, you know, crazy. CNBC Signature Event. East Tech West, CNBC's exclusive invitation-only retreat returns to Nansha, Guangzhou, China in 2019. We explore all things tech from artificial intelligence to 5G. Join the world's most prolific investors, inventors, and entrepreneurs as they share their stories and celebrate innovation. Visit EastTechWest.com for an application to attend. Russian President Vladimir Putin is hosting the fifth edition of the Eastern Economic Forum in Vladivostok with the leaders of Japan, India and Malaysia as key guests. The summit comes as Russia looks to pivot investment to Asia amid US and European sanctions. Well, Tanvir, our colleague, joins us on the ground with more. Tanvir, talk us through some of the big checks that will be signed across the course of the next couple of days and what this means in terms of some of the geopolitics as well. Well, Karen, we'll have to wait a little while for the big checks to be signed. But yeah, we're talking about really big numbers out there. So I'll uh, keep you updated on as and when uh, those confirmations uh, come through. But, you know, as you pointed out, uh, the fifth Eastern Economic Forum right here in Vladivostok, Russia, and we're focused on essentially five uh, key critical business dialogues uh, between Russia, China, Russia, India, Russia, Japan, Russia, ASEAN, and Russia, South Korea. And the person who's involved directly in those bilaterals is sitting right here with me, 
Kirill Dimitriev is the CEO of RDIF. Uh, and I'm, he joins me, of course, uh, to discuss what we can expect over the course of the next three days. Kirill, it's great to have you on the show. Thank Thanks you very for much you. for your time. I want to get some news bits out of the way. You know, the flash crash in the pound, uh, rising risk of a no-deal Brexit. What does it really mean for your exposure to the region? Uh, because Europe, as a trading bloc, is uh, really very, very important for, for Russia. Yes. Well, Russia definitely wants strong Europe. And we believe that Europe suffered 100 billion uh, euro losses from sanctions against Russia. But we believe that hopefully Brexit will go the right way and will not create more repercussions. Because we feel the world economy is very volatile right now with U.S.-China tensions, etc. So uh, really we have significant recession risks, significant volatility risks. So definitely Brexit, we hope, is managed very carefully. And we want European economy to stay strong. Are you worried about a no deal Brexit? Well, uh, we are, and we believe that, again, if this is not dealt with carefully, it could cause a world recession, as world economy is very volatile right now. Okay. Uh, talk about the Aramco IPO. Uh, you know, we've seen a change of guard there, and that is largely in compliance, uh, you know, to maintain the compliance standards and in line uh, with the compliance requirements. But Aramco, when it was coming to the markets the last time around, they were talking about a, a target of $80 on oil. Does the IPO's timing signal the top for the market? Well, definitely not. I think, you know, we have a great uh, deal with Saudi Arabia, the stabilized world markets. We saw that the oil price is stable in the 60 to 70, um, you know, uh, range. And uh, definitely, as there is growing uh, demand and actually U.S. inventory has been declining. So we don't see it as a top of the market. I think uh, Aramco is one of the greatest companies in the world. I think market is waiting for this IPO to happen. And frankly, it's going to give very important boost to the Saudi economy, which is transforming itself. So, right, but an IPO of that size, when it hits the market, especially at a time when global economic conditions are looking a bit shaky, would signal that uh, maybe there's too much pressure on global liquidity. Wouldn't that be a risk? Well, we believe Aramco is a great investment opportunity. I think it will generate lots of interest from Asian investors, from investors all over the world. And I think, uh, you know, oil is here to stay for a long time, and there are many players who would be interested to invest in Aramco IPO. Okay, let's talk about EEF and let's talk about what your focus is with regards to uh, building these uh, trade agreements uh, with, uh, you know, neighboring countries. Uh, you just signed a deal with Mongolia yesterday for an investment fund. You're targeting $200 billion uh, of uh, trade, total trade with China, $100 billion with Turkey, $30 billion yeah. with India. These are big numbers, very ambitious. Would you say realistic in this sort of uh, a global economic environment? Well, definitely, because we feel Asia is really the engine growth of the world. And we see that the growth we see in China and in other uh, places is staggering. And we just had our trade with China significantly below 100 billion. Now it's over 100 billion. So definitely Asia is a priority. We feel that Asian economies really figured out how to cooperate well with Russia, how to cooperate among themselves. We also see that more and more trade is happening in national currencies. And for example, the fund we signed with Mongolia will be uh, in our national currencies. So definitely very bullish on the trade with Asia and investments with Asia. And that's a very interesting point that you've raised, because I also know that you've set up a payment mechanism with India, 
which is largely to make uh, payments for defense deals uh, in the ruby, uh, rupee ruble exchange. Uh, is that the trend? Because even when I look at the forex reserves in Russia, the yuan exposure has gone up, dollar exposure has come down. Uh, do you think that uh, this is essentially, uh, in a way, evading the hegemony of, of the dollar globally and uh, the dominance of, of dollar as a reserve currency? Well, we feel the dollar will, of course, remain a very strong global currency, but it is true that transactions in dollar are declining. So by 5% SWIFT transaction in dollar declined over the last couple of years. We also see people buying less uh, of U.S. debt, foreigners. So it's mostly domestic purchases of U.S. debt. So I think U.S. has to think about what policy effects uh, its decisions has on people's willingness to work with dollar. But dollar, of course, will remain a big part of the global uh, currency world. Okay, let's talk about Prime Minister Modi being the chief guest at yes. the fifth EEF. And in a few hours from now, we will have President Putin as well as Prime Minister Modi uh, engage in that big bilateral. You'll be part of that meeting as well. Uh, why India and why now? Because India has been a compelling growth story under Prime Minister Modi for the last five years. Well, India has always been a very traditional partner of Russia. We are very excited about partnership with India, and we are going to sign an important deal for us to have more Russian companies invest in India, and Indian companies are investing quite a bit in Russia. But we feel that under Prime Minister Modi, the growth is accelerating, and there are more opportunities to work together in technology and in infrastructure and other areas. So again, I think today's meeting is very important because great relationship between the leaders need to translate into great deals. But the interesting angle is that so far we've heard more about Russia, China, Russia, China, Russia, China in the headlines, whereas India has been a stronger ally of Russia <laughs> for many decades since India's independence, in fact. So I think, you know, this forum will highlight the India cooperation. And again, we are very excited with Tata Power and a couple of other companies will be working with us in Russia. So again, I believe we can do much more uh, on India cooperation and we'll do this. But also Japan is very important. We have great uh, technology investment with Japan that we'll be announcing uh, here today and tomorrow. So, again, Russia is very open to work with Asian My uh, top economies. My final question is, do you think that the Russia-India partnership, uh, that that bilateral is undervalued, that the partnership is underutilized? I think we can definitely do much more. Uh, and it's a matter of Russian and Indian companies working much more together. And I think particularly in technology and infrastructure area, the time is now. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.